Back in 2004, Poetry Magazine published an essay, essay by the poet uh, Mary Carr about her religious life called Facing Altars. It's a surprising piece, uh, partly surprising to find rumination on coming to faith in a secular publisher like Poetry Magazine, partly surprising due to the high number of R-rated image and language choices found uh, in the essay that are usually absent in Christian literature. Um, So many, in fact, that it's actually difficult for me to quote her unedited from the pulpit, just a heads up, uh, in the event that you're so inspired by the sermon that you run out to read her essay out loud to your, you know, 10-year-old or something, uh, they'll need a few years, uh, bookmark it. <laughs> Mary Carr, uh, in this essay, spends some time ruminating on a difficulty that seems to run through the human existence, and this problem is the problem of joy. The problem is not that joy doesn't exist or that it's wrong in some way. The problem is more that joy is so fleeting compared to other emotional states. You know what I mean? Fear, anger, apathy, bitterness, depression, victimhood. I mean, these are emotional states easily found and more naturally dwelt in for long stretches of time for whatever reason. I think of my lifelong relationship with anxiety, and I wondered this week if I felt that continuous and high level of a different emotion, an emotion like joy, what would I even be like? Like, would I be some sort of debauched Dionysus, you know, an inveterate hedonist, an absolute drooling drain on society if I felt joy instead of an anxiety that pushed me to keep functioning and contributing? So Mary is talking about this, and she, finds, she talks about finding it difficult to write poems about joy, that the very instrument that she is working with is not given over much to that feeling. W.H. Auden wrote, the purpose of poetry is disenchantment. And while a few Mary Olivers spend their careers writing of the quiet joys of life, Why is Mary Oliver's collection of poems written after the loss of her partner of 40 years the most treasured and dog-eared in my collection? I see the problem of joy in the church, too. So when Mary Carr begins disinterestedly attending a Catholic church with her son, she balks at the crucifix on the wall and all of its gory pain and disfigurement. But her teenage son says, I mean, what else would get everybody's attention but something really grisly? It's like Pulp Fiction. In other words, we wouldn't have it any other way. The church is designed by people. This says something more about us than God. We don't give the birthday party a second glance, but we congregate to watch the building fire. And this is just anecdotal on my part, but we also tend to come to church in a state of need. I know I did, and I still do. You know, it's a death or a disaster or a divorce, or we feel an obligation to our children, or we we crave some solace. I knew an exceptionally faithful man years ago who gave all of his 
very limited free time to the ministries of the church. And one day in my office, he said, you know, I understand duty. I understand serving God because we owe God life itself. I do not understand that Jesus calls us friends. Now, I think, to be clear, that Christ Church is one of the most joyful places I've been a part of. And I'm not trying to paint a picture of a frowning, morose, southern Gothic-style religion here. One thing people told me over and over when I came here was that this was a place that knew how to throw a party. Hmm? But I am here trying to trace how we get there from the starting place where most of us began considering our spiritual lives in a state of need or pain, of an absence of joy. Speaking of knowing how to throw a party, our gospel for the second Sunday after the Epiphany brings us Jesus' first miracle. All season long, we'll be given these revelatory, you know, aha moments where we begin to see who Jesus actually is. Mary comes to her son and says, they're out of wine. Jesus responds with, woman, what is that to you and me? A response that can sound to us maybe a little cold. Distanced as we are in time and custom, and maybe just maybe colored by our own experiences of contentious relationships with our mothers, it can sound a little cold, a little dismissive. Jesus' retort, though, was probably ironic, since Mary was somehow concerned enough to ask Jesus for help. We can assume it was something to them, that it was something, rather than painting her as a busybody. And Mary, for her part, in the text, doesn't seem to take it as a dismissal, but understands him perfectly and then orchestrates the scenario, telling the servants to go and do whatever he tells them to do. Notice, Jesus is called to his first miracle by the intervention of his mother. Another thing to know here is that weddings were not just a Saturday event blocked off for the evening. Uh, In those times, wedding feasts went on for days, weeks even. The wine running out here was poor planning, you know, a lack of foresight, whatever it was, but it was most certainly the cutting short of feasting and drinking that had already been going on for at least a week. Jesus orders the jars used for ritual purification to be filled with water. The jars used for bathing and baptism, the serious business of cleansing body and soul. Then Jesus makes somewhere around 150 more gallons, not just wine, but the finest wine. 150 gallons. I mean, we thought we knew how to throw a party here. It would take one ton, 2,000 pounds of grapes to make 150 gallons of wine. It's like, it's like over 600 bottles of the finest scotch suddenly appearing at the tail end of a party. 150 gallons of the finest wine for a group of people who were already drunk. 
The first miracle was not to the broken or the lame or the poor. God came to us first in our joy, that most fleeting of emotional experiences. I don't think it takes much growing up in the world to see that it's not just poetry that disenchants, but really life itself, the whole world. Maybe you're more of a pragmatic sort that sees the hurt and the poverty and the brokenness of the world and wonders if Jesus couldn't have been a little more efficient in his plan of redemption that made time to heal and restore rather than beginning with the extension of a week's debauchery. But when Jews and Christians told the story of God arriving to redeem the world, the image that they used to describe it was a marriage feast. It's an image that contains so much desire, intimacy, of mutuality and abundance. There would be wine, the finest wine, strained clear, Isaiah says, an unstopped font of overflowing joy. Dostoevsky writes for all us pragmatists, that sweet miracle, it was not men's grief, but their joy that Christ visited. He worked his first miracle to help men's gladness. Whoever loves the people loves their joy, too. So take this miracle in your hearts today. Maybe particularly on the days when it seems so fleeting. God will find you anywhere, in any emotional state. But first, he comes to your joy. Taste and see that the Lord is good.